our series is The Word, and we are studying Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, written by an anonymous psalmist who obviously had a profound appreciation and a passionate desire for the Word of God. And that's really remarkable, and I want to emphasize this again, that this man, whoever he was, he didn't even have a complete Old Testament, let alone what you have, and that's a complete Bible, Old and New Testaments. We are abundantly blessed. And when this anonymous man at some unknown time writes his words, he addresses them directly to the Lord. It's a combination of praise and prayer because this man who wrote this long psalm, he is not satisfied to have the word just in his home or in his hand. He's not satisfied with it just on a scroll. He's not satisfied even with having the word in his head. He wants the word in his heart. I feel the same way. Nearly every verse in this psalm, 176 of them, nearly every verse contains a direct mention of the word of God. So this chapter is literally the word talking about the word. That's why it's so powerful. The writer uses eight different words to describe the word of God. He uses law, judgments, testimonies, precepts, commandments, statutes, the way, and of course, the word. And uh, I, I want to say this just before we jump off into our lesson tonight. Christians do not read the Bible as a law book. We don't read it as a history book. We don't read it as a textbook. This is a love letter from our great God to each one of us, to his church, to his bride. And so the way that we love and honor and obey the word of God reveals the way we love and honor and obey Jesus, the God of the word. You cannot separate God from his word or the Bible from God. Now, we've been through this, and you have a, a handout tonight. Even the structure of Psalm 119 is amazing because of the organization of this author and the inspiration of the Spirit of God. As we've studied already, it's written like an acrostic poem. There are 22 sections. Each section has eight lines, or we would say eight verses. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, and so the 22 sections of Psalm 119 follow this pattern. Each section of eight verses, every verse in that section, if you could read Hebrew, begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is over that section in your Bible. It's an amazing structure. It's a beautiful chapter of the Word of God. I just love it. Now, you have a handout tonight, and every Hebrew letter is based on a symbol, and it has an image associated with it. And once you know that, and you know that each of these sections has a Hebrew letter, and that Hebrew letter has a meaning, oh my goodness, it has a numerical value, it has a symbol attached to it, an image. Once you know that, Psalm 119, if you study it, takes on a whole new meaning. Now, last week we studied the first seven sections of Psalm 119, and we studied in turn seven letters. Remember that Hebrew reads from right to left. So everyone say Aleph. 
That's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's depicted by an ox because the word of God will carry you. It'll lift life's heavy burdens if you just learn to lean on it. The second letter, everyone say bait. Bait is depicted by a house. Because the word of God gives us not only directions to join this house, God's family, but also to make heaven our eternal home. Third letter is Gimel. Everyone say Gimel. Gimel is depicted by a camel. Because the person who learns to drink deeply from the word of God, they can endure dry, thirsty times in life, in their spiritual life. Everyone say Dalit. Dalit is the fourth letter. It's depicted by a door. Because the person who walks according to the word of God, they discover God's direction, God's doors. Some doors are open, some doors are closed, but they discover God's direction for their life. Everyone say hate. Hate is the the fifth letter. It's depicted by a window. And just like we look through windows, the word reveals God to us. And the, the letter hate also has a, a, a concept associated with it. Just like you would look through the window and see something, the word that's associated with hate is also behold. Everyone say behold. So, so we behold God's glory as we look into the window of the word. Uh, the next letter, the sixth letter is vav. Everyone say vav. It's depicted by a nail because this Bible that you carry, this Bible that you read, this Bible that you pray over, it is so strong. You can hang your life on it. You can hang your future on it. It's a nail in a sure place. You can hang your eternity on its promises. The seventh letter, uh, everyone say Zion. Zion is depicted by a sword. Because this Bible is the sword of the Spirit. That's a New Testament phrase. It is so powerful that it can knock down and push back the enemy. You need to learn the word if for no other reason than it is the sword of the Spirit to conquer the influence of the enemy in your life. Now, this is a little verse that we talked about last week, and and I just want to mention it one more time. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. On one hand, the word of God is shallow. If you read it with an open mind and an open heart, you will find the message of salvation. It's right on the surface of the word of God. You'll read about Jesus. You'll read about his death, burial, resurrection. You'll read the book of Acts and find out how we respond to that. It's shallow. You can find what you need right on the surface. But on the other hand, This word of God is so deep that you could study it for 10,000 lifetimes and never exhaust its revelation. The Bible, your Bible, is like a gold mine with treasure after treasure after treasure available to those who will just make the effort to dig a little beyond its surface. And that's what we're doing in this midweek Bible study series. And so tonight... We're going to cover the next few sections of Psalm 119. This letter is hit. Everyone say hit. Hit. Sounds kind of like a cross between hate and hit, which isn't a good combination, but this is a nice letter. Hit. 
It is depicted by a fence, this letter. Because the Bible puts a boundary, a fence around us, not to hem us in, but to keep evil out. A lot of people totally miss the point when it comes to the law of God, but not this psalmist. What people see as punishment, he sees as protection. And he's right and they're wrong. You see, if you jump out of a 10-story window and you ignore God's physical law of gravity... You don't break God's law. God's law breaks you, probably your neck. And the same is true of God's spiritual laws. We say, well, you broke God's law. You broke his commandments. Really, you didn't. His commandments broke you because if you don't live according to them, his blessing can't rest on your life. Think about this. When did God give Israel the law? He didn't give them the law so they could obey it. And then he'd say, okay, now I'll set you free. No, he set them free from Egypt at Passover. And then at Sinai, a few weeks later, he gave them his law. Now think about that. See, you don't need laws when you're a slave. Your old master, the devil, told you exactly what to do and you did it. You followed along. You were like his puppet. You only need laws when you're free. We live in a free country, so we have laws. And God's law, God's word, gives us liberty by giving us boundaries. And in the boundaries he has set, there is such freedom and blessing and peace. There is such liberty. Sometimes, like a rebellious teenager, all of you that are of age, you've been one, by the way, Sometimes, like a rebellious teenager, we push against these rules. But here's what I love about mature saints. As we mature, just like in our natural family, isn't it amazing that your mom and dad got so much smarter the older you got? They were as dumb as a brick when you were 16. And then by the time you were 25, they were brilliant people. Isn't that amazing? See, as we mature in the Lord, we appreciate his laws. If we break God's laws by straying outside the fence, thankfully, we can ask him for mercy. Look at verse 58. Be merciful unto me according to thy word. But the best way to protect yourself from sin is not to get in a disaster and then ask for mercy. The best way to protect yourself from sin is to make a decision in advance. I am always going to obey the word. He says in verse 57, I have said that I would keep thy words. That needs to be your determination. I said, God, I'm going to keep your words. Look at the psalmist's beautiful response to the fence, to God's protection. He says in verse 59, I turned my feet unto thy testimonies. I'm not pushing. I'm not trying to escape. When you said go this way, I turned my feet that way. He says in verse 60, I delayed not to keep thy commandments. He says in 61, I have not forgotten thy law. And he's pretty smart. He realizes that some relationships pull him toward obedience, but other relationships pull him away from obedience. So here's his decision again in advance. He doesn't wait 
till some friends try to get him to sin against God. He makes a decision in advance. Here's his decision. You need to make this decision. Verse 63. I am a companion of all them that fear thee and of them that keep thy precepts. Let me tell you why I love church. I love to hang around people that have made the same decision I've made to serve God, to love God, to live for God, to keep his commandments because here's what I know. Some people pull you away from God's word but other people pull you toward God's word. So I'm a companion of those that reverence the Lord. If you want to live a victorious Christian life, let me give you one little piece of pastoral and friendly advice. Learn to love the fence. Learn to love God's law. Verse 62, at midnight, I will rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments. The fence isn't a burden to me. The fence is a blessing to me. The next letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Tet, and it's over the next section. Everyone say Tet. This is the ninth letter, and unusually, this is strange, it's depicted by a snake because this word is so quick. It's like a serpent that can dart at you, inject its venom only with the word. It injects conviction when you least expect it. And furthermore, this word is an antidote to the venom of sin. So this is really an unusual image for the word of God. I don't think you would have seen this coming. It's a serpent. After all, it was the serpent that deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. But wait a second. Do you remember what happened when Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh in the book of Exodus? The rod of Aaron, he threw down that rod, it became a serpent. But then the magicians of Egypt, they just replicated that miracle. They threw down their rods and they all became serpents. But if you read a little further in Exodus 7, the rod of Aaron swallowed up all the others. You see, this word of God can swallow up all the devil's lies, all his deceptions, all his temptations. It can swallow up every curse. People talk about generational curses. If you believe that, that's fine. I'm not going to have a debate with you. But listen to me. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. And behold, all things are become new. So even if you think, well, there's a generational curse that just kind of passes down in my family tree. If you're serving Jesus and if you're into the word, the word can devour anything that the enemy sent to devour you. The word is stronger. And do you remember what happened in Numbers chapter 21? Anybody that looked at the brazen serpent lifted up would be cured of the plague that was rampaging through Israel and they would live. Now that's obviously a beautiful picture of Calvary because Jesus himself referred to it in John 3, 14. But it is the word that tells us about Calvary. So it's not only about looking to Calvary in this passage, it's about looking to the word that shows us Calvary because the word is an antidote to the venom of sin. When we allow the word to convict us of sin, it might not be pleasant immediately, but it will ultimately bring good into our lives. The Hebrew word tub, which means good, pleasant, 
beneficial, precious, delightful, better, or right. The Hebrew word tub. It is used six times in just these eight verses by the psalmist. Verse 68, thou art good, and God, you doest good. See, God never does anything to hurt you. He only ever does anything to help you. God deals with me according to his word. Verse 65, I can always count on God to act and to answer me according to the scripture. And that's why the psalmist says in verse 66, teach me good judgment and knowledge. God, I want to know how to align my mind and align my prayers and align my life with your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. It is absolutely true that the better you know God's word, the better you can pray because you pray according to God's word. You'll go to pray for something and you'll think, now that's just me, that's just selfish. No, I want to align my prayer request to the word of God. Now sometimes, look at verse 69, he says, the proud have forged a lie against me. Sometimes God allows enemies and trials in our lives. But if we handle these situations right, he will even use enemies and trials and setbacks for our good. I love verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. That's a powerful verse right there, verse 71. It's good for me. I don't like afflictions any more than anybody else. But every once in a while, have you ever walked through something you'd never want to do it again? You hated every minute while you were going through it. But when you got finished, you looked back and said, you know what? I'm closer to God than I was before that trial started. So you can say with this psalmist, it is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. This next little letter, we talked about it briefly uh, when, when we were beginning this series. Everyone say Yud. Yud is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's the 10th letter. And it's depicted by a hand. Because the word, like this tiny little letter, it completes its work in us subtly like a small seed grows. It's the word put in us, put in our path, put in our lives by the hand of God. The psalmist says in the very first verse of this section, verse 73, thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Because God is my creator, he knows what's best for me. And I can trust his word. I, I can have confidence that his judgments are right. Verse 75, even when he allows me to be afflicted, he's still acting toward me in faithfulness. Why? Because I was created by his hand. I'm his creation. I'm his child. He formed me in my mother's womb. He's been with me every day of my life. Even those days that I didn't serve him, he knew about me and he loved me and you too. I am always in good hands when I serve God. It might not feel like it some days, but you can take it to the bank. I am in good hands when I am in the hand of God. Jesus said, no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. 
And the psalmist knows this. He knows that when his hope is in the word, then his life becomes an example and an encouragement to others. See, your relationship with the word isn't just for you. It's for everybody else. Look at verse 74. They that fear thee, those that reverence God, they will be glad when they see me. They're going to reverence you, God, when they see me. I'm going to live by the word so much that people will see the benefits of the word in my life and they will reverence you. They will fear thee that see me. He's like Job. You remember Job said, Shall we accept good from the hand of the Lord and not bad? See, good and bad, Job didn't know what God was up to. It was good and bad from his perception, from his viewpoint, from his limited understanding. But even Job got it. And in chapter 2 of the book of Job, in verse 10, he said, I'm not going to just accept good from the hand of the Lord. If God sends me stuff I don't like, if it's from his hand, I'm still going to accept it, and I'm not going to stop serving him. Those who have confidence in the word of God, in both good times and bad times, they are a strength to other people. How many times have you seen a brother or a sister in the faith walking through this horrible trial and you think, that is so awful, Jesus. Their body is in such pain. Their family is in such turmoil. They've suffered such heartache and hardship and loss but they just keep on worshiping you and they just keep living faithful and they just keep showing up at church with a smile on their face and a praise on their lips. You see, if somebody has confidence in this Bible, whether it's good or bad, whether it's sunny or raining, whether they're going on the mountain or walking through the valley, when somebody's like that, their life is a strength and an inspiration to others. Paul told the Galatians, these two verses, they're only three verses apart, but at first reading, it seems almost like they contradict each other. Galatians 6 and 5 says, bear your own burden. And Galatians 6 and 2 says, bear one another's burdens. Well, Paul, what are you talking about? What do you want me to do? I'm confused. No, what he's saying is when you serve God... And when you obey the word, you'll have enough strength over that you don't even, it doesn't even flinch when, when you can bear your burdens and you can help somebody else bear their burdens because the word of God is, it's got you in God's hands. God's hands are holding you together and holding you up. So if you, if you look at this, look at all the verses in this little section that begin with the word let. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, this psalmist prays, let this cup pass from me. That's what he's praying in, in essence. But he also submits to God's will. Remember, Jesus prayed, nevertheless, as I, not as I will, but as thou wilt. So watch what the psalmist does. Verse 76, let me have comfort. That's my prayer. Verse 77, let me have mercy. Verse 78, let my enemies be put to shame. Verse 79, let me be a blessing and a testimony. And, and verse 80, let my life be blameless in thy sight. God, let this happen. Allow this to happen. I'm asking you for this to happen. But he's also got a determination in his heart, just like those three Hebrew boys 
O king, our God is able to save us from this burning, fiery furnace. Three words. But if not, we're still not bowing to you. We're still not going to worship your dumb idol. Even if God lets us go into the furnace and we burn to a crisp, we are not going to bow. And so the psalmist, he has the same determination. God, I'm asking you to let my life turn out this way. I'm asking you for blessing and comfort and mercy and all of that. But if not... I'm still going to serve you. I'm still going to obey your word. And most of all, I'm still going to rest in your hand. My goodness. The next letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Kaf. Everyone say Kaf. No, don't Kaf. Just say Kaf. This is the 11th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And it's depicted by a wing. Um, this is an amazing study. I could preach for two hours just on this letter, but I won't. The person who obeys God's word lives under God's wing, under the shadow of his protection, under the shadow of his covenant. Now, let's be honest here tonight. It's Bible study. We can be honest. Sometimes it feels like life is conspiring against us. And the enemy is attacking us. And sometimes it feels like God has forsaken us and it comes at us all at the same time. But here's what the psalmist knew even though he felt that. You've got to put a dividing line between what you feel and what you know. That's worth saying again. You got to put a dividing line between what you feel and what you know. I feel lots of stuff and so do you. And not all of my feelings are good. In fact, you know, they say the, the optimist sees the glass as half full and the pessimist sees the glass as half empty. I'm a realist. I see the glass as shattered and dirty and laying in the garbage. And the staff knows it. I can snatch defeat out of certain victory. I can see the cloud around the silver lining. But let me tell you, there's a difference, there's a big difference, there's a Bible difference between what you feel and what you know. I may feel down, but the Word says, I am more than a conqueror. I may feel sick, but the Word says, with His stripes we are healed. So you got to divide what you feel from what you know. And here's what the psalmist knows. He knew that God's everlasting arms were underneath him. That's what Moses told the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 33. Underneath are the everlasting arms. We talked about that in that previous letter. But here's what else he knew. Psalm 91 verse 4. I am under the shadow of your wings. Your covenant, your protection. Wings in the scripture always symbolize protection and covering of God's covenant. And that's what this letter means. No matter what is happening around us, no matter how the enemy rages, you are sheltered in the secret place. God's word overshadows you. So it doesn't get rid of your feelings. But when your feelings assail you and attack you and assault you, you've got to distinguish between what you feel and what you know. Now the psalmist, he's honest. Verse 81, my soul is fainting. Verse 82, my vision is failing. Verse 83, it gets worse. 
I am like a bottle in the smoke. You know what that means? Bottles back then were wineskins. And if you put a wineskin too near to a campfire, it started to dry up and crack and get brittle. It was awful. He said, my spirit's dry and my heart's hardening. He says in verse 84, my trial's worsening. He says in verse 85, my enemies are persecuting me. He's got a bad day happening right there. But he has learned to distinguish between what he sees and what he feels. And on the other hand, what he knows from the word of God. We sing it every once in a while. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. I'm surrounded by your word. I'm covered with your covenant. You are my refuge and my fortress. I am under your wings, God. I rest in your shadow. I am protected by your covenant. So whatever you are feeling today, whatever you are seeing on the horizon of your life today, remember, it is always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. You don't have to figure out your whole future. You don't have to figure out next year or next month or even next week. Just take one day at a time. That's the question. Can you just do this for a day? Because if you can serve God for a day today, you can serve God for a day again tomorrow. And one day at a time, you're going to make it. And the psalmist has this figured out. Verse 81, I hope in thy word. Verse 83, I do not forget thy statutes. Verse 86, thy commandments, all thy commandments are faithful. He refuses to become a victim when God has declared him a victor. Look at what he said, verse 87. They had almost consumed me upon the earth. I got enemies and trials and stuff. They're just gnawing at my spirit. They had almost consumed me upon the earth. But in the middle of what I felt, I forsook not thy precepts. When you feel like you can't hold on to anything else, hold on to the word of God. Hold on to the preaching that you heard. Hold on to the promise that you're believing for. Hold on to the scripture that you memorized. When you feel like you can't hold on to anything else, hold on to the word. His next letter is uh, Lamed. Everyone say Lamed. This is the 12th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and, and the picture associated with Lamed is a staff. Uh, the word corrects us. It's like a shepherd's staff, and, and it prods us out of lethargy, and it spurs us to action. The most familiar psalm in the Bible is not Psalm 119. You know what it is? Yes, you do. Psalm 23, most familiar psalm in the Bible. And in that psalm of only six verses... The psalmist compares God's word to a rod and a staff. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And that's the image behind this Hebrew letter, Lamed. The rod corrects us and the staff directs us. Another image that's associated with this letter, it's all the same thing, a staff, a rod, or a goad. Everyone say a goad. Now, a goad, we would say in modern English, a cattle prod. Do you know sometimes God uses a cattle prod on you? Well, you're a sheep. You're a livestock animal, so I guess you qualify. It's a goad. God prompts us. He prods us. He, he, he spurs us to action. He pushes us out of our lethargy. 
It's a goad. This is exactly what Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus. He said in Acts 9.5, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That's a, a, a goad, a cattle prod. And, and, and a cattle prod in that day was a very sharp stick of some kind. And so they would use that to prod the livestock to go where they wanted to go. And every once in a while, that, that ox or that sheep or whatever would kick back against that goad. And when they did, they didn't injure the goad. They injured themselves. And so that's what Jesus was saying to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're not hurting me. You're my kingdom. You're only hurting you. So when we rebel against the word of God, it doesn't hurt the church. It doesn't hurt God. It doesn't hurt the kingdom. It only hurts us. So don't kick back against the prodding of the word of God. Many people do, but not this psalmist. He knows that God's faithfulness never quits. Look at verse 90. He says, thy faithfulness is unto all generations. He says in verse 91, even the world is subject to God's word. They continue, the world, everything in it, continues this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Everything you can see in this world, God is in control of it. Nothing takes him by surprise. The psalmist knows he would have already perished if it hadn't been for the word. Verse 92, unless thy law had been my delights, I should then have perished in my affliction. Have you ever said to yourself or to anybody else, I wouldn't have got through it if it hadn't been for the Lord. I wouldn't have got through it if it hadn't been for the word. That's what this man is writing. He knows that it is the word that quickens his spirit. Verse 93. And verse 89 that starts this section off, it's one of the most familiar memory verses of this psalm. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. That means that it doesn't matter what happens here on earth because his word isn't settled on earth where it can be debated and dissected. His word is settled in heaven and it's his word that governs your life. So I don't care what it looks like down here, the word that governs you, the word that prods you and, and directs you and comforts you, that word is settled in heaven, not here on earth. I love this verse. I hadn't noticed it before till I was studying for this series. Verse 96. I have seen an end of all perfection. That's kind of a phrase. It's awkwardly translated in English probably because there's no direct translation. But what he means is, I've seen the goodness of God in my life. I've looked at the beauty of a sunset and I've looked at the majesty of the mountains and I've looked at my family and I've looked at my friends and I've looked at my blessings and I've looked at the house that I live in. I have seen an end of all perfection. I've looked around and my life is pretty good. But thy commandment is exceeding broad. My life's pretty good. And you know what? When you look at the world today, you may have some problems. But we're in the top percentile of the entire world's population for wealth and for privileges and for blessings. But when I look at my life and I say, I got a pretty good life. God's word is still bigger 
than all of my blessings. God's word is still greater than everything I've ever seen. I can look at a beautiful sunset and say, wow. But then I look into the word of God and it's triple wow. It's quadruple wow. God's word is broader. His commandments, his covenant is exceeding broad. Next letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Mem. Everyone say Mem. Mem is the, uh, the 13th letter. And this letter is depicted by water. And water, of course, in, in scripture, in symbolism, is this mighty moving force. And in particular, this water, when you compare water to the word of God, one image comes to mind. It's the water that washes us. It's the water that we're baptized in. It's the water that carries us along. Now, we live in quite a day. Never before in the history of Christendom have there been so many tools that any lay person can access and it's available for Bible study and Bible understanding. And we are grateful for every one of those tools. Some people have Bible apps on their phone and they've got all kinds of electronic tools and you can go to Google and Wikipedia and there's all kinds of Bible study sites online. It is absolutely amazing. But let me tell you, this word of God is unlike any other book. This isn't like Shakespeare. This isn't like any other book. The word of God, you've got to know the author of this book. You've got to have a relationship with the author of this book to get the most out of it. You can probably get a lot out of Shakespeare. Now, I personally did not. But maybe you did in high school. I thought I was going to die in 10-2 in English or whatever it was, I thought that was the most boring stuff. But you know what? The Bible is written, they, they even say it's a similar kind of old English language. I don't feel that way about the Bible. I read the Bible and I know the King James Version has some these and thous in it. To me, that just makes it majestic. It's, uh, I, I can't tell you the difference except this. I didn't know William Shakespeare and when I read some stuff about him, I don't really care that I didn't know him. But I know the author of this book. And when you've got a relationship with the author of this book, it's supernatural. It's miraculous. It's amazing. So to have a relationship with God, you've got to obey his will. And you will find his will in his word. It's a tragedy today that so many believers, people that call themselves Christians, they only have a head knowledge of the Bible. They know a few pet scriptures. They understand a little bit of doctrine. But what they need is not head knowledge of this book. They need heart obedience when it comes to this book. Paul taught that the church should be sanctified and cleansed. He said, with the washing of water by the word. That's Ephesians 5, 26. You know what your Bible is? It's a bath for your soul. You need to get clean. You need to get sin from the edges of your mind. You need a bath in the word of God. You can be sanctified and cleansed with the washing of water by the word. And that's why this man, this psalmist, he's anonymous, but boy, he's dead on track. It's why he loves the word so much. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I read a scripture in the morning and I just chew on it all day long. I don't just read the word. I let the word read me. If you obey this Bible, 
It will make you wise beyond your experience. Verse 98, you'll be wiser than your enemies. Verse 99, you'll be wiser than your teachers. And verse 100, you'll even be wiser than the ancients, wiser than some of your elders. The world will keep you from, the word will keep you from sin if you get the word in you. He says, I have, the word has refrained my feet from every evil way. That's verse 101. It keeps you from backsliding if you get this word into you. He says in verse 102, I have not departed from thy judgments. I don't stray from your judgments when I keep in the word. The word lets you through, see through the temptations that come against you every day from the world and from the flesh and the devil. He says in verse 104, I hate every false way. I'm not mad at too many people in this life. I'm not mad at very much in this life, but I am mad at the devil. I have a hate on for the enemy of my soul. I hate his lies. I hate his deceptions. I hate his temptations. I hate his deceit. I don't have anything good to say about the devil except he does a really good job being the devil. That's about it. But if you'll get this word into you, it'll put a fortification in you. It'll be like a stream of water flowing through you that keeps all that junk cleared out. But if you want that, you've got to acquire a thirst for the water of the word. Verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I love this word. Hmm. Next letter, the Hebrew alphabet. Everyone say noon. This is the 14th letter, and it's depicted by a fish. And the word that we read, it calls us to be fishers of men. And that word also has a significance, a meaning of to spread out something, like a fisherman would spread out his net. Your best witness is not your words. Your best witness is your life. Paul compared our lives to an epistle known and read of all men. So if you are serious about doing what Jesus called every one of his followers to do, if you are serious about being a fisher of men, then you need to be consistently living according to the word. Your testimony is important. And your testimony, the one that matters, comes from obeying the word of God. The most familiar verse in all of Psalm 119 is right here in this section, the first verse. Say it with me. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In the ancient world, people didn't have lanterns and flashlights and everything that we do tonight. In the ancient world, they carried clay lamps, really just a clay dish containing oil with a wick in it and a flame lit. And that would eliminate basically just a little tiny area. Basically, their lamp illuminated only about one step ahead. And that's a picture of the word. We don't see the entire road. If you knew what was maybe going to happen in your life a month from now, You'd be frantic, you'd be anxious. But you know what? When you have your confidence in the word of God, you only need to see one step ahead at a time because we walk by faith and not by sight. 
So we don't see the entire road ahead. But listen, every single act of obedience shows you the next step. That's how we got saved. We repented. Then we were shown the next step. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. We did that, and then the next step, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. One step at a time is how you live this life. That's why John, the beloved, told us to walk in the light. Why? So others can see God's light in you. That's why you need to walk in the light. And this psalmist is determined. He gets pretty emphatic here. Verse 106, I have sworn... And I will perform it. I am going to keep God's commandments. I swear to myself and everybody around me, I'm going to do it. He says in verse 111 that God's commandments are his heritage forever. And in verse 112, he says, even unto the end. In other words, I'm going to walk in God's commandments one step at a time, every step of the journey until the end. And I would say about that psalmist, now that is a consistent testimony. And that's the determination that you need to make. One more letter tonight. Don't get excited. I got one more little thing after this letter. (laughs) Everyone say, Samik. Samik. This letter is depicted by a support, by a prop. Think of a forked branch that you would push up under a weakened branch of a tree to hold it up. That's what this is. It's like a a support or a prop for a tree, a branch, so that that tree can weather storms. And the psalmist says this specifically. Verse 116, uphold me according unto thy word that I may live. God, I can't make it unless your word holds me up and holds me together. He says in verse 117, Hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. Oh my goodness, there's such power in this word. You you think that you're doing your daily devotions, and that you're probably, if you're average, you probably think, I'm not even doing this very good, Jesus, and I'm not probably doing this right, and I don't know if I'm getting much out of it. But if you just keep feeding this word into you, This word holds you up when life tries to push you down. This word supports you when other people forsake you. It holds you together. Some of us would be multimillionaires if we had a dollar for every time we've prayed a prayer like that. Hold me up, God. Hold me together, God. Keep me safe. We literally lean on the Lord for support every day that we live. It is the promises of his word that prop us up when everything else lets us down. And that is why this psalmist, he refuses to fill his mind with empty, trivial pursuits. He doesn't have much time to waste. He loves the Lord too much. Verse 113, I hate Vain thoughts. Remember Solomon's book, Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The word vain or vanity means emptiness. The psalmist said, 
I hate just empty stuff from this world. So much of what we involve ourselves in, so much of the time we spend, we get very little or no return on it. But your time spent in the word of God, it has a return in this life and it has an etern- a return in the life to come. He said, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. You see, the Lord has held him up too many times for him to let the Lord down. That's why he loves the law of God. Verse 114, here's what he says to God. Remember, in this psalm, basically every verse talks about the word, and every verse is a prayer or a praise to God. Here's what he says, verse 114. Thou art my hiding place and my shield. You prop me up. You support me. You hold me together. You help me weather the storms. So I hope in thy word. I want to transition to one other little thing here. But don't you feel the same way the psalmist did? God, I hope in your word. Your word supports me. Your word has held me together more times than I can count. Anybody join me in feeling that way? Why don't you lift up your hands to the Lord and just pause. Let's push pause for a moment. And let's just thank God for his word. His word is so precious. His word is so powerful. His word is so strong. His word is so mighty. The word holds us together and keeps us together it's amazing oh I thank you Jesus for your word I thank you Jesus for your word oh my (laughs) oh my Remember what he wrote? In God I will praise his word. That's what the psalmist wrote. Every once in a while, you just need to to give a little thanks for the word of God. What a beautiful, powerful force it is in our lives. So I hope by now we're, we're almost three quarters of the way through this little series. We got one more lesson. I hope that by now you agree with me that Psalm 119 is a beautiful tribute to the word of God. Even these crazy little Hebrew letters hold rich treasure. And let me assure you, we have only scratched the surface. You don't need to know anything we're studying in this series to get saved. You can get saved with Acts 2.38. But my goodness, when you lock into the word of God and you begin to study it and dig in it and read it and love it and cherish it, It'll keep you saved. It's amazing. So why are we studying all these weird little Hebrew letters, Pastor? Why is that even worth our time? We don't speak Hebrew. But now that we know just a little bit about these Hebrew letters and we've covered just enough to do this part, let's take a little quick closer look at some of them in closing tonight. The Gospel of John, as you know, records the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the true vine and the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. That's all in the Gospel of John. Now, it's invisible in the English language. When when Jesus says, I am, we only see a pronoun, I, and a verb, am. But it's very obvious in the original languages. In in Greek, Jesus is saying, ego, I, me. It's a carpenter from Nazareth 
and he's using the ancient name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. But the problem is this carpenter who they think is illegitimately born, this carpenter who is from the wrong side of the tracks in a little hovel of a village, he's using the name of God to apply to himself as if it's his own name. The name, every Hebrew knew this. It came from God's appearance to Moses in a burning bush. And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Moses, when you go to Pharaoh and when you go to talk to the children of Israel, you just tell them, I am has sent me unto you. So here's Jesus, the carpenter. He's walking around the streets and the villages and the cities of Israel 2,000 years ago using God's name as if it was his own name. Now, theologians and denominations, entire denominations, may have missed this today, but the Pharisees caught Jesus' meaning all too well. You just have to read one chapter to prove that to yourself, John chapter 8. By the end of that chapter, they were so angry at Jesus using the name of God in reference to himself that they took up stones to stone him. And he just walked through them and disappeared. He said in that chapter, before Abraham was, I am. That's not a pronoun and a verb. He was reaching back into the greatest moment of revelation in Hebrew history, Moses at the burning bush, and saying, that God that appeared to Moses, that God that appeared to Abraham, that's me. He said, if you believe not that I am, you'll die in your sins. And then he said something really strange. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am. Jesus uses this name everywhere. He speaks it at a well, and a nameless woman's life is changed forever. He speaks his name in a storm, and a disciple named Peter is empowered to walk on the raging waves of the sea. He speaks his name in a garden at midnight and an entire battalion of highly trained Roman soldiers fall to the ground like so much cordwood. You don't know what power you're unleashing when you use the name of Jesus. Now, this name, I am that I am, this name that Jesus used in reference to himself, it is ego I me in Greek, but in Hebrew... It is Y-H-V-H, Yahweh, or we would say Yahweh. It comes from four letters, Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. You already know these letters because we already studied them, and I know you remember everything we have studied in the last three weeks. And this is called the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Tetragrammaton. Because ancient Hebrew was written only in consonants, those who read it aloud, they had to su supply the vowel sounds. So to roughly translate this name into English, it's impossible. We would just say the eternal. That's what it means. And in the English language, we would use English consonants. We would use J-H-V-H, -H, and we'd put in the vowels and come up with Jehovah, all the same name. And so with that in mind, Here's where we're going at the end of Bible study tonight. This is amazing. And you learn it from these little crazy squiggly Hebrew letters. John chapter 19. It's the day of Jesus' crucifixion. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. 
And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near to the city. And this title over his head on the cross was written in three languages, Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Now, the Greeks didn't have any problem with this. And the Romans didn't have any problem with this. But watch, the Jews had a problem with this. Then said the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate, don't write that. Write not the king of the Jews. Change it, Pilate. Put some words in it. Write, he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate looked back at these priests and he said, what I have written, I have written. So the title stayed over the cross. Now, it didn't trouble the Romans and it didn't trouble the Greeks, but it messed up the Jews because the Jews had books like Psalm 119. And they knew that in Psalm 119, the beautiful pattern of that writing, every letter, the first letter of every word, it was a beautiful pattern. The, the book of Lamentations, every chapter has patterns in the letters. The first letter of every verse. It's, it's amazing in the book of Lamentations. It occurs all through the word of God. There are all these little hot spots where, where this happens. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And so when they look at this inscription, they see something different than the Romans and the Greeks. Written over Jesus' head in Hebrew is Yeshua Hanazari. Remember, Hebrew reads from right to left. Yeshua Hanazari, Vimelech Hayehudim, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. But when the people who knew Psalm 119 looked at that. When the people who'd studied the patterns of the word of God and memorized huge sections of the word of God, when they looked at that, they were used to the acrostic poem of Psalm 119. They were used to the acrostic poem of the book of Lamentations. So when they looked at that, they saw an acrostic and it was condemning because the first letter of each of those words, Yeshua Hanazari, Vimelech Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It's spelled out Yod, He, Vav, He. <laughs> Written over Jesus' head as he died on the cross, shedding his blood was Yahweh. Written right over his head. That's what they saw the day Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't a pauper's or a carpenter's blood that was being shed that day. Paul said, it's the blood of God. God robed himself in flesh so he could have blood to shed to pay for our redemption. That is amazing to me. Huh. But it's even more beautiful than that. It's even more amazing than that. It's even more astounding than that. Because God had revealed that name to Moses thousands of years before Calvary. Now you got a handout. You know two-thirds of the Hebrew alphabet by now. You know this. You see, every letter has a little meaning associated with it. It's even more beautiful. Because God revealed to Moses the message of Calvary. Whew, when he revealed to Moses his name and said, you go tell Pharaoh that if you use this name, you're getting free. You're getting out. You're coming out of Egypt. This is the name. He revealed Calvary in his own name because Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You know, Yud means hand. Hey, it's a window. It means behold. Vav means nail. 
And hey, again, the second time means behold. As Jesus died on the cross, all around him, creation spoke with a loud voice. The sun darkened. The earth shook. The rocks split. Graves flew open. And even the temple veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. Why? Because creation was yelling loudly, this isn't just another man. This is something different. All around the cross, creation spoke loudly. But over the cross, the word saw that and said, I got to speak loudly too. So over the cross, written and encoded in the very name of Almighty God, it said, behold the hand, behold the nail. That had been in God's own name from the time of the burning bush. Every time they referred to the name of God, they were portraying Calvary. Behold the hand, behold the nail. It was all is there. It just needed somebody to look into the word of God and find it. Now folks that's a savior. Folks that's the word. Folks that's what we're in. Folks that's the church. It was always planned that God would have a church. God always knew that you'd be part of his church. No wonder he wants you to have a relationship with his word because it is the written word that reveals the living word I'm done would you lift up everything you've got and worship this great God whose plan of salvation is so beautiful and so powerful and so expansive and so eternal what a savior we worship what a bible we have it's the word it'll help you it'll heal you it'll sustain you it'll direct you it will get you to heaven it's the word Oh, let your praise out. This isn't just a little piece.